Locked On NBA, the biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts. Today, we'll stop in Boston to speak with John Corrales of Locked On Celtics about Boston getting a huge Game 1 victory over Milwaukee. We'll go to Charles Hamilton of Locked On Warriors about Golden State sneaking away with a victory in Game 1 against the Rockets. And lastly, we'll go to Sean Woodley of Locked On Raptors about Toronto's dismantling of Philadelphia in their Game 1 uh, in Game One of their second round series. It's all coming up. The biggest story is with the local experts on Locked On NBA. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. All right, guys, welcome back to another week of Locked On NBA. I am your Monday host, Josh Lloyd. I'm also the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast and the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com. We're going to be talking about a lot of second-round series in the NBA playoffs, so let's get to it. Now let's go to one of the hosts of the Locked On Celtics podcast. John Corrales is here to talk about a, uh, I guess, a, a surprising game one win, a huge game one win, a comfortable game one win on the road for the Boston Celtics over the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, John, as a Celtics person covering the team, you've always got you know, optimism. You know how good this team can be. But to come out and win by 22 points on the road in game one is is probably even a surprise to you. Oh, yeah, that's a really shocking result. Um, everything went right. Like everything went exactly the way the Celtics wanted it to with, you know, the the expected Milwaukee run and the expected you know mistakes that are going to be made. But they had a game plan that they executed to perfection. They exploited the Horford Lopez matchup and Horford went off and, and had a big scoring night. They packed the paint and they made it insanely difficult for Giannis Antetokounmpo to get anything going at the at the rim. And if it wasn't for some uncharacteristically good three point shooting from him, he would have had a, a very noticeably bad stat line. So everything just kind of went perfectly for the Celtics. Yeah, touching on Giannis, he he hit three of his five three point attempts, but on his twos, he was four of sixteen. Uh, for a total of 7 of 21 from the field. Also missed 5 of his 10 free throws. And looking at the overall team stats in this game, it is pretty wild to look at the discrepancies. The Bucks shot 35% from the field. The Celtics shot 54. Both teams shot 63% from the line, but the Bucks did it on 24 attempts versus the Celtics' 8 attempts. Now, there are a couple of things there that are obviously going to change. There's not going to be a 20 percentage point difference in the field goal percentage between the two teams. There's not going to be a three-fold difference between the free throw attempts between these two teams. So, John, out of those two things like the, the Celtics shooting wildly well the Bucks shooting wildly poorly or the Bucks getting to the line all the time and the Celtics never getting to the line which one of those two do you think is is most likely to change coming up for game two well I, I think it's the the field goal percentages um I, I just don't think that Milwaukee's going to be that cold they the Boston defensive strategy was great but uh, there were definitely some misses on the Bucks' part. Uh, the Celtics hit so many, so many of their shots. Uh, and partly because, I mean, they were open. They were definitely open shots. And when you have open guys open, you're, you're going to get that. Um, you're going to get a, a pretty good percentage. Uh, I, I would expect some of that to level out. And, and I wouldn't expect any sort of uh, 
double digit extended double digit lead on either side. So, but again, the, the things that Milwaukee needs to do to adjust are going to be interesting because it, it takes away from a lot of what they're trying to do fundamentally and what they've done fundamentally throughout the season. So some of those things can, can kind of level out, but Boston still seems to have some of those advantages. That defensive game plan is still going to be what it is and still work to some degree. And even if Milwaukee hits a few of those shots, I mean, this was a, this was a 15 to 20 point game for most of it. Uh, if, if they can't figure out a way to slow down the Celtics offense, then they're still going to have problems. Every one of the Celtics main rotation players, except for Jason Tatum shot 50% or better. So that's yeah, something that's not likely here to continue there. One thing I do want to touch on here, it's more from a Milwaukee perspective, but you can talk about it from the Boston side is the, the struggles that Eric Bledsoe has against this Celtics team in the playoffs. We know the issues he had with Terry Rozier last year, um, you know, sprouted plenty of uh, internet memes and discussions about Bledsoe's play with the way that he struggled. And you know, game one here, Six points in 25 minutes on one of five shooting. It seems that that sort of performance is perhaps rearing its head again. Do you think that there is a... Was there signs from Bledsoe that he was getting in his own head here or was it just a weird off performance? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't think that he was getting in his own head, but uh, I think he might have just been off. The Celtics, in their in their defensive rotations, once, once they were able to stop Giannis, uh, what they did prevent was a lot of... Giannis kickouts, um, and so they weren't getting a lot of the open looks that they were used to getting. So I think one of the adjustments that Milwaukee will will try to make is anticipating where Boston is doubling from and and making the right passes out of that. And if they can if they can correct some of what was happening in in that regard, then I think the ball will swing around and find Bledsoe for more open looks. So I, he just didn't get a chance to shoot. I mean, five shots is is nothing. You, no rhythm, no no nothing. So um, I don't think that Boston really keyed in on stopping Bledsoe. I think what they did is just limited Giannis so much that they they frustrated him, and he couldn't get anything going in the paint. And so much of Milwaukee's offense is predicated on Giannis driving, drawing attention, and kicking out. That it, without those kickouts, the guys like uh, Bledsoe would struggle. Who, from your opinion, if there even was one, would you say was an unsung hero for this Celtics team? We can look at what Kyrie was able to do. You know, twenty six points, eleven assists, fifty seven percent shooting. That that's he's Kyrie. We expect that sort of stuff. But is there a player who, whether it was for two minutes, for ten minutes, that sort of maybe went a little bit under the radar? That was a real key part of this victory for Boston. Well, I, I think there's two guys that come to mind. Gordon Hayward had a stretch in the second quarter when the Celtics were really building a lead that he was just murdering the the Bucks from uh, you know just getting into the teeth of the defense, hitting shots in the middle of the lane. When they built that first 15-point lead, he was really at the heart of it. And another guy is Jalen Brown, who had that big dunk, that signature moment, but was pretty steady throughout the game. He had 19 points, and he shot something like 57% from the field. Uh, and and he was he was just getting open shots. The only shot that I remember that was maybe not quite as advisable was a step back three that he drilled. Um, I don't expect Jalen Brown to be making many step back threes, but he was just a steady kind of get the ball in the flow of the offense, score, shoot the ball, score uh, when you get the open shots, the open looks. 
So, I mean, those two guys really stood out as, as guys that weren't that aren't maybe going to get a lot of the shine after this. I mean, that belongs to Al Horford and it belongs to Kyrie for sure. But but those two guys definitely had, had major impacts in this game. Well, things are you know, most likely going to change for game two, but I think any Boston fan, coaching staff, player would be pretty happy when Pat Connaughton takes the third amount, uh, third highest amount <laughs> of field goal attempts on the Bucks. That's a that seems like a recipe for success for Boston, but things will change, and there's a, a real cha- chance that they could change pretty significantly. But that puts the Celtics in a great position in this series to get that win, to get the psychological advantage, to get the big point spread here in that first game. Really gives them an upper hand now. Now it's all about consolidating that advantage, John. And you're going to have all that covered over on Locked On Celtics as Boston looks to push forward in this series and perhaps steal a second game in Milwaukee in Game 2. Thanks for jumping on Locked On NBA with me. You got it, man. Make sure you guys are subscribing to Locked On NBA by doing that on the new Himalaya podcast app. Go download the Himalaya podcast app and subscribe to Locked On NBA or your favorite show across the Locked On Podcast Network. Now, let's bring in the host of the Locked On Warriors podcast, Charles Hamilton, is here. We are recording mere minutes after the end of Game 1 when the Warriors get the victory over the Houston Rockets. Charles, let's just uh, start by getting this out of the way first. A little bit of controversy in this game. Yeah, I uh, I know that's going to be the topic of conversation moving forward. I I just hate blaming refs for anything. I, I, I'm really against it. Um, and I know people call me a homer or whatever, and that's fine. But I just think you have 48 minutes to try and win the game, and I don't think anyone loses a game because of officiating. Uh, there were some missed calls on Harden threes, but then we also didn't see every single replay of the Warriors not getting calls. I just think it's a, a slippery slope, but we're definitely going to be hearing about it for sure. Yeah, that's the thing. We have a, a game that goes 48 minutes uh, long, obviously not including overtime games, and they're, they're, the calls at the end in the last two minutes, the last 30 seconds, are as important as games as calls in the first 30 seconds, but the ones exactly. that get amplified significantly. And no one's arguing. That, you know, I'm not even talking about necessarily that last Harden one. There were other ones during the game that appeared like perhaps you know, some of the three-point shots the Rockets were taking may have been fouls, but it's not the <laughs> overall impact. Yeah, it's not, it's not the complete 100% deciding factor in the outcome of a game but if let's if we want to ignore the refereeing and there's going to be plenty of discussion about that over the coming days and I think even Charles you as a, as a, a Warriors person as a, as some people would say as you said a homer you can you even admitted that there were some calls that there were perhaps missed on the Rockets doesn't mean there weren't calls missed the other direction as well so we're not going to focus too much on that but it was mm-hmm. a, a great game to start the series the Warriors get the narrow victory Looks like we could be in for another one of those seven-game type series we saw last season. I want to talk a little bit about how the Warriors uh, ran their rotations. Draymond Green starting again at center. The only actual center we really saw playing this one was Kevon Luna. We got five minutes out of Andrew Bogut, uh, no mm-hmm. Jordan Bell. Do you think that's going to be a common theme throughout the series? Because even we saw with Houston, Clint Capella was ineffective, a lot more P.J. Tucker at center. Is it going to be almost a, a centerless series? I think so, and I actually love the move by Steve Kerr. It shows some desperation. It shows that he's not sitting around. One of the knocks that Steve has gotten before is he's traditional. He loves playing the big center. Uh, you know, I mean, you can go all the way back to 2016 when Verajao and Azili were getting minutes in Game 7. Um, but I just love the move because it just this is their best lineup. might be the best lineup in the NBA, the, the quote-unquote Hamptons 5 uh, death lineup, whatever you want to call it. And I just love that he's going to it immediately and just showing desperation because – I mean, I thought in uh, game five against the Clippers, he should have gone to them more. Or, yeah, it was game five where the Clippers won and pushed it to six. 
Um, so I just like seeing it. I like seeing the desperation. And as nice as Bogut has been for them as a pickup, it, he he just doesn't fit this series. And even if they put Nene on the floor like they did late, you'd so much rather see uh, the small lineup where Steph can get him in a pick and roll and you know hit a dagger than having Bogut go up against him. Um, and Capella, you know, Capella, as much as I like him, uh, I think he, I don't know if a step back is really the right term. He didn't have as good a season as last year. I'll put it that way. No, no, he, he started off a lot slower this season as well. Dealt with, yeah. Uh, dealt with injuries. Uh, also now the, the other change that the Warriors did make here, of course, Draymond started game six against the Clippers, but it was Sean Livingston who was in the lineup, but they just went straight to Andre Iguodala and here he played 34 minutes, barely missed a shot and yeah, rolling on, on uh, all cylinders, but still the Warriors only coming away with a narrow victory as, as Kerr, as you said, went into desperation stakes already in game one, really throwing everything out there. Is there a, a, an element of concern that you know, he's, not necessarily unveiled all of his tricks because coaches always have other things they can do, but you know, putting everything out there, going really hard with the powerhouse five uh, of that grouping, and still it is a tight game that could have gone really either way. Mm-hmm. I, I think part of it is when it came to the, the Clippers situation was they wanted to match Iguodala and, say, Kevon Looney with uh, Williams and Harrell coming off the bench. Um, but I, I also agree, yeah, you don't have that, you know, ace up your sleeve anymore of that lineup of starting or, you know, playing a Wadala more starting him, what have you. Uh, it's definitely something, but I do think it just, it matches up so much better with what the, the uh, Rockets are going to do. And I, I'd be interested to see if the Rockets try and counter by starting. Uh, I mean, I don't know who they'd start, maybe Gerald Green or Amon Shumpert or someone, but basically starting Tucker at the five, like, are they going to make a move? Are they going to stick with what they're doing? Um, it'll be interesting to see, but that's a great point. Like that's, that's his big move, and he's already already played his hand. The problem the the Rockets have is they don't have that Iguodala guy off the bench. We mm-hmm. saw 21 minutes of Iman Trumpet today, 21 minutes of Daniel House. Gerald Green played seven minutes. You're inserting those guys into the starting lineup for Clint Capella, it, irrespective of how the matchup works or how Capella's going against the Warriors, it is a step down in talent level with those guys. They're already dealing with uh, Austin Rivers, who, who missed today. Maybe he's an option to come in there. He missed today with, with an illness. Maybe he could come mm-hmm. in there and play some of those minutes. I don't think D'Antoni will go that direction. He just doesn't have that quality on the bench to bring in yeah. and play that, that Iguodala-type role. And late in the game, Chris Paul uh, ejected uh, in this one. Charles, from what you saw in that, do you think there's a risk that there might be any sort of suspension coming for game two? You know, I didn't. I only watched it like once or twice. I didn't see any clear contact with the official, and I think that's what would cause a suspension. But uh, I didn't see enough to get him suspended, but... I mean, you never, you never know. I, I maybe even one of them gets rescinded. You just really have no idea with with tax and and moving forward. But I, I would be surprised if he gets suspended for game two. I think the NBA makes a pretty solid effort to not do that. From uh, from my perspective, a neutral perspective, of course, don't want him to be suspended. I want the best players no, no. out there on the court to try and decide this series in what looks like, you know, the, obviously at this point, the best series in the playoffs and probably will be by the time we even get to the NBA finals, still remaining the best series in the playoffs. Steph Curry dealt with foul trouble today. Charles mm-hmm. still managed to play 37 minutes, but yeah, he has a, a tendency and he's shown it a couple of times in these playoffs to be a bit reckless with his, uh, with his hands and, uh, and not really paying attention to his foul count. Do you think that's something that could lead to some trouble with Steph, but he did navigate the, the, the sixth foul rather uh, on a pretty, fine line there towards the end of the game yeah yeah i mean that's the thing even when he came back after five he was still aggressive and uh, yeah it drives me crazy it drives other warriors fans crazy just give up the bucket give 
give James Harden the two points. You know, you foul him and he goes to the line and gets him anyways. Uh, it It's something that he dealt with throughout the Clippers series, and you're hoping he corrects it. And through one game against the Rockets, he, he hasn't. Um, I was glad to see Steve Kerr put him back in because he will – he believes in the, you know, sit your guy with, with foul trouble. And I think that can hurt a little more than, than help, you know, having Steph Curry out there, whether he's taking shots or not, his gravity changes the game. So uh, I'm glad he played him, but yeah, he was still pretty reckless with it after. Like, I'm surprised he didn't pick up that six foul. Yeah, it was uh, it was tight there down the end for Curry, and hopefully, again, we want the best players on the court, so we don't want Steph limited to thirty minutes or, mm-hmm. or fouling out in thirty-two minutes with five minutes to go in in a game or anything along that. We want these uh, best players to decide these games. Game two is obviously going to be interesting, depending on how uh, how things go here with this Chris Paul situation. Um, what do you think Houston can do differently? You mentioned perhaps a starting lineup change, but what could should the Warriors be looking out for that Houston might throw at them in, in a different direction, or is it just going to be more of the same and hope that now Harden doesn't shoot 32%. Yeah, I honestly think it's, you know, Harden shooting 32%. Uh, I don't think you're going to get 27 from Eric Gordon every game. Uh, like, I think the Warriors are coming out pretty happy with this win, where you a game where you have 20 turnovers and the uh, Rocket shot 25 more threes than them and still got the win. I This kind of reminds me of game one of the finals last year, where you know, they snuck away a win. They stole one pretty much. And I don't know how Houston's going to react. I, I think the Warriors or the hope is that the Warriors understand that they, you know, stole one and kind of lock in more here. But as far as the Rockets are concerned, yeah, you made a great point about the starting lineup. Sure. Would you like to start PJ Tucker? Yeah, but he's or start him at the five. But Clint Capella probably is your fifth best player. So you want your best players on the floor. I mean, I just think we're going to see more of the same. It's it's the Dan Tony threes or layups, and sometimes it works, and you can blow a team out. And other times, you go fourteen of forty-seven, and you know you lose. I I just don't know what cards he has to play, honestly. Yeah, that, that's what's going to make this so interesting to see. Because if these rocket shots go in, then yeah, it could be a fifteen-point margin the other direction. Like things can change yeah. that wildly. It's going to be the most watched series probably of the entire NBA playoffs. And Charles will have it covered from a Warriors perspective over on Locked On Warriors. Thanks for jumping on Locked On NBA with me. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Now we bring in the host of the Locked On Raptors podcast. Sean Woodley is here to help us uh, try and decipher Toronto's big game one victory over the Philadelphia 76ers, 108-95. Let's start, Sean, by talking about just how dominant Kawhi Leonard was. 45 and 11, 70% shooting, um, 10 of 11 from the free throw line. It was one of the best performances of the entire playoffs, in my opinion. Yeah, it was absurd. We, I mean, up on press row, all like the blogger types like me all kind of sit together and just it was the the highest constitution of like outward cackles that any of us has ever put it together like like while on press row it was kind of absurd just sort of like flirting with the edges of professionalism and all that stuff but it's hard not to just like laugh he's just so different from anything the Raptors have ever had and juxtaposed next to DeMar DeRozan you know, and the Spurs washing out with DeRozan going 7 of 21, you just kind of see all the reasons exactly why the Raptors went out and made the trade and took the risk and, and you know, deemed it a worthy gamble to trade a fan favorite and a first rounder and Jakob Pertl for, for Kawhi Leonard. He's insane. It's just we're running out of words to describe it. And it, it seems like it's only kind of coalescing into something more monstrous every single day. And if he plays like that, you know, the Raptors are going to be hard pressed to lose this series, I think. He just, he carries the offense in such a way that even if 
Philly is able to sort of neutralize Kyle Lowry or Danny Green off the ball or, uh, you know, you give Pascal Siakam trouble. It just feels like Kawhi is always going to be there to be able to bail them out, which is, again, something the Raptors have never had. And it, it is it, it's remarkable. Again, running out of different words for it, but it's uh, it's a blast to watch for sure. And if Raptors fans... You know, it's been a really weird year because Raptors fans have been like calm the entire time the playoffs have been going on, which is just not what happens in these parts during the postseason. And he he has made it. He's just like a safety blanket. He makes everyone calm. He relaxes everybody. And to have that dude in your team, man, it's uh, it's a real advantage. Let's say that. Kawhi, uh, Kawhi being traded to Toronto is why I picked the Raptors to make the NBA Finals this season. It's looking pretty good at this point with how well he is going. But I've got a question for you, Sean. Someone posed this to me yeah. on an episode of Locked on Fantasy Basketball last week. They said, who's the Raptors' second best player? <sighs> so I think it's uh, – <laughs> so I'm so I'm so much a dyed-in-the-wool dyed Sorry, Kyle Lowry supporter that – it's going to take a lot for Pascal Siakam to knock Kyle Lowry off that perch because as much as Kyle's offense is not the same this year or it's just been scaled back, he still does everything that makes the Raptors go. He he pushes the pace. He takes charges. He is just so, so smart. There's a reason he was like a plus 106 in the first round during the Magic, which was a league best mark uh, in the first round. Like he just everything he does drives winning and drives positive play. That said, Pascal Siakam is incredible. Like, and the the jump he's made. Another one of the things that sort of gets the people on press row to laugh is when he just finds a new, more obtuse angle to throw a layup off of from eight feet out. Like, it seems like there's no barrier to what he'll try. And the way he brutalized Tobias Harris last night and Jimmy Butler as well when he was guarding him, it was just, it was incredible. And again, he's this other kind of guy. His his growth this season has begun to become hard to ex- explain and describe because we've been sort of trying to grapple with what it is and what it means and how good he is all season long. And I feel like everyone kind of had a bit of seed of a, a bit of doubt that, hey, maybe Pascal in the playoffs is going to be a little less useful. His three point shot, maybe it's not something teams are going to be scared of. And as he's shown ever since game three of the Magic series, that's something teams absolutely should be scared of. And I would say he's been the best, the second best Raptor in the playoffs so far. I still think Kyle Lowry is probably the most the second most important Raptor, but. Siakam's incredible, and it's not long until he's like the undisputed number two guy on this team. Or if Kawhi ends up leaving, he'll be a number one, and uh, it'll soften the blow if Kawhi ends up does leaving uh, to go elsewhere. The ascent of Siakam has been literally unbelievable. This is a guy that shot 20% from three over his first two NBA seasons and now just consistently banging him in at 40%. It feels like the usage spike has been ridiculous, under 16% usage last year. He topped 20% this year, but over the last couple of months, he's constantly at 24%. He's taking up big chunks of the offense. Their last two games, he's been at 29 and 27% usage in over 30 minutes, 20 points per game in all these games. Efficient. He's doing more stuff with the ball. He's creating his own shot. I don't think anybody literally could have seen this sort of development coming. And it is, along with the addition of Kawhi, why this team is just chugging along the way that they are. Throughout this series, what about Marcus Sol? How he is fitting? He's mm-hmm. taking the bulk of these minutes at center. Serge Ibaka under twenty minutes in game one. Gasol is starting all these games. We saw Nurse throughout the season alternate the Ibaka Valanciunas center position, the Ibaka Gasol situation. But is Gasol just penciled in, or not even penciled in? You've written in with very thick marker as the starting center for these playoffs. 
Yeah, it's chiseled in stone and like laminated. He, he's he's not moving out of that spot. The Raptors are just so so deadly with him in that starting five. Uh, if you think back, and I'm not sure how much of a fantasy implication this had, you know, but the way that you would have covered it back earlier in the season, but um, you know, the Raptors starting five was weird and clunky and didn't move the ball very well, and they would get into these little weird sort of. You know, just pockets of the game where it'd be like Kawhi swapping possessions with the rest of the offense, and it, there was no real sort of consistency to it. And then you throw Gasol in, and he's just like a human stick of butter, and everything kind of works now. Everything moves, the gears are smooth, and it just connects everything. He just, I, I think a colleague of mine at Raptors HQ wrote this uh, this past week that he's just like, he's a safety pin. Like he just, oh, this was Michael Pina, sorry, for uh, SB Nation. He, he wrote it and he described it perfectly. He's a safety pin that just ties everything together. And, you know, he doesn't even have to shoot that much. He doesn't, I don't think he wants to shoot, which might become a problem. But, you know, I think the way that he's sort of found a balance, he was okay taking some open threes in game one against the Sixers. And, you know, I think he's, He's going to have to become more willing to take that shot, I think, as the as this playoffs go along here. He's probably the least effective offensive player in the Raptors starting five, which is an insane thing to say. Um, but he has been such a key component to making that starting five into the monstrous lineup it's been. And it's just that lineup is killing teams. It's just absolutely it was the reason just them existing on the floor was the reason the Magic had no chance in the first round. And they, I believe, had like a plus 34.3 net rating as a lineup in 21 minutes in game one as well. Um, they scored like 146 points per 100 possessions in game one. They were getting whatever they wanted against the Sixers. And, you know, that's kind of an interesting part of this series is how the lineups and the rotations of each coach are going to match up. Because if there's a concern I have about Gasol, it's that he wasn't used enough in game one because, you know, I expected and hoped that we would see Nick Nurse sort of match Gasol's minutes to Joel Embiid's. And you know how Embiid comes out early in the first quarter, in the third quarter, and like it's kind of all over the place from Brett Brown. I, I was hoping we'd see a matching of, of Gasol's minutes with Embiid's. That wasn't the case. I think him and Ibaka both played 13 minutes against Embiid, and the results were far more successful in the Raptors' favor uh, when, when Gasol was guarding Embiid, as you might expect. Um, so I, I would hope that's an adjustment that Nurse will make going forward, just like more Gasol, because, yeah, he's the, he's the starter, he's entrenched, and he should be getting his minutes scaled up because the Raptors are just like a, a, a buzzsaw whenever he's on the floor. Well, we'll see how this all goes in Game 2, the Toronto Raptors holding that one-game advantage at this point. Um, things could very easily change. We might not have Leonard or Siakam shoot over 80% on their twos in Game 2, which could have a, a bit of an impact <laughs> there. But Toronto clearly has the advantage, and Sean is going to cover that all for you over on Locked On Raptors. Thanks for jumping on Locked On NBA with me. No problem, Josh. Take it easy. And that'll do it for another episode of Locked On NBA. Make sure you are subscribing to Locked On NBA and your favorite podcasts across the Locked On Podcast Network by using the Himalaya Podcast app. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. And if you could leave us a five-star review, it would be fantastic. Follow me on Twitter at RedRock underscore B-Ball. Check out all the local podcasts for all your favorite teams, whether they're in the playoffs or not. And follow the Locked On Podcast Network on Instagram and on Twitter at LockedOnNBANet. Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.